Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, back on a regular post-holiday schedule. Charlie, before we move on to the truly cancerous stuff, I thought I'd talk about cigarettes for a minute, um, just because there's something in the New York Times today that jumped out at me. They have a story about how certain younger people have taken up smoking cigarettes, um, which was unfashionable for a while and now has uh, started to come back. But there just was a um, sentence that really jumped out at me. So um, they're writing about this woman who is a 19-year-old pre-med student at Columbia. And she is going outside to have a cigarette with some friends. And then the time writes in parentheses, she requested not to be identified by name because she didn't want her habit to affect her career in medicine. Okay. Does that not seem to you particularly emblematic of the times we live in? That, um, you know, this person is terrified, a teenager, that her medical career is going to be derailed at some point in her life. Because when she was 19, she stopped out to have a cigarette with some friends. She's probably not wrong to be cautious. Yeah, that's... But isn't that just That's terrible. terrible. <laughs> yes. That is. Uh, I mean, the reason I paused when you asked me is I didn't initially understand what she meant. Yeah. She's afraid that she's going to be uh, kicked out of school or shunned or passed over for jobs or other sorts of things because 10 years from now, someone will say, Well, there was a story about you in the New York Times when you were 19 years old and an undergrad. And in that story, you were talking about smoking. So we don't like people to smoke if they're doctors or talk about... I mean, I, I yeah, it would never occur to me. These people are a different breed. Yeah. You know, the thing with smoking and doctors is um, everyone knows that if you're a doctor, the bad habit you're supposed to pick up is cocaine. <laughs> uh, we've already got onto cocaine on this podcast. It's early for us. Uh, well, it's not, not it's, it's afternoon for you, but, that's true. uh, that's true. I meant early in the episode. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe smoking and Coke is better than talking about the filibuster, but I suppose we should talk about the filibuster. Although I'm going to want one or both of those by the time we're done with this conversation, <laughs> I'm sure. I think not that I would. I was going to say, I think one of them is probably more easily gettable. Yeah, I live in a in a pretty uh, liberal neighborhood, so I imagine Coke is pretty easy too. Oh, I meant yeah. cigarettes. Yeah, <laughs> no one's allowed to sell cigarettes around here. I wouldn't uh, know where to start trying to get drugs. Have you noticed that like so many drugstores don't sell them anymore? Was it um I forget was it CVS or Walgreens that just completely stopped selling them? And uh, then a few other places have, have given that up as well. I tell you what did shock me when I first moved to America was the extraordinary range of prices depending on which state you're in. Yes, $20 for a pack of cigarettes in New York City and yeah. uh, about 4 in Kentucky. Well, Kentucky, you would expect to be cheap, but uh, this may have changed. But I can remember 
going from New York, where I lived, and everywhere you see the signs outside news agents or gas stations saying $16, $17, to California. News, news agents, you're saying. Whatever you call them here. Bodega. <laughs> um, to anyway. California, where it was five, six. California yeah. may have changed that now. This this was this memory is eight years old, but yeah, you know, and that was in San yeah, Francisco as well. Expensive. Yeah, um, you know it is funny. Um, the class thing with smoking um, that you know once upon a time, you know maybe in the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, it was sort of glamorous, and then it was kind of something everyone did for a while in the fifties and sixties. Then it became a distinctly uh, lower class thing uh, for a while um, or something that people who were um, more affluent did when they were drinking or going out, but not something they would do every day. Um, but these sort of, you know, get up in the morning and have a cigarette first thing uh, became, I don't know if it was actually lower class, but it became sort of perceived as being a lower class thing. In England, it's a habit that is avoided by the middle class. Mm. Working class and upper class people smoke. Yeah. And that's true of a great number of things in England. It's Likewise. the middle class that is fastidious. There's a great book called Watching the English, written by hmm. Kate uh, something. She's a sociologist. Cook, so, so cook I imagine. <laughs> and... It runs through the ways in which upper class and working class Brits actually have a great deal in common. For example, I mean, obviously, this is a generalization, but middle class people avoid becoming known for their eccentricities. Mm -hmm. But working class people and upper class people do not. Uh, middle class people have a latent anti-Americanism. Working class people and upper class people do not. Hmm. I'm trying to remember all of them now, but but she she makes the point that if you have foibles or what would be regarded as vices, and you're utterly open about them, <laughs> then you either live in a castle or in government housing, <laughs> <laughs> one or the other. Or both, I suppose, that uh, you could be like the royal family that would live in government housing that is a castle. True. <laughs> True. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing in the American context because of the, um, you know, the ascendancy of sort of uh, bourgeois uh, discipline and, uh, and uh, I guess you would say fastidiousness. This really came out uh, to me a couple of years ago. I was in Los Angeles and... Um, talking to a guy out there who's um, covered Hollywood for a long time for magazines and such. And he's pointing out something to me that was really interesting that I hadn't really noticed until he pointed it out, which is that um, I think we may have even talked about this before, you know, that, that sort of infamous stretch of Hollywood Boulevard that used to be kind of the uh, nightlife uh, area, bars and stuff. There's just nothing uh, that's open past 10 o'clock there anymore. It's all yogurt places and juice and, uh, tea bars and uh and that sort of thing and the uh you know, sort of hollywood types don't go out uh in the evening anymore not to bars and things like that and it's become a very you know sort of healthier more buttoned down 
uh, early to bed, early to rise kind of uh, culture in life. And that to me is really uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I have nothing against yogurt bars or smoothie bars. I like both of those products. But if they replace real bars, I tend to get antsy. Yeah, there's probably a lot to be said about this because I guess people are drinking more uh, these days than they were pre-pandemic. At least that's what I've been reading, but drinking more at home. They are, although it's still amazing to me how teetotaler America is relative to Britain. You know, I mean, I'm oversimplifying this, but I remember reading about this a few years ago and learning that one-third of American adults do not drink at all. Yeah. One-third of American adults drink, but maybe a beer a week. And then Mm. there are three tiers after that. There are people... (laughs) Well, there are. There's, There's the tier of people who don't drink very much, but drink more than a beer. Then there's the yes, tier alcoholics, of alcoholics, people... functional alcoholics, and Kevin Williams. <laughs> no, no, this is the thing: is that the next tier is what I would regard as sort of more normal drinkers if you if you calibrate normal to Britain, and then mm. above that, there's people so, that have a problem. Again, as I was saying, alcoholics. Yes. <laughs> no, the people at the top have a problem. About the top ten percent have a problem, yeah. and. You know, so you obviously have people who have a problem in Britain, and then you have the normal drinkers, and you have people who don't drink that much. But the idea that one third of British people wouldn't drink at all, or really effectively two thirds of Americans don't drink at all. Yeah. That is. Oh, you're very rarely, anyway. Um, yeah. That, that is just alien to the, the culture I grew up in. Yeah, it was very. It's funny because it's very rarely alcohol in the house when I was growing up. Um, you wouldn't see, uh, you know, a six pack of beer in the fridge or anything like that. But I don't, it wasn't like a decision. Um, you know, my parents weren't conscientiously anti-drinking and, um, they would have one every now and then, but, um, it was just almost, you know, never in the house. I remember, um, because the town I grew up doesn't have, didn't have at the time any, uh, package sales. So there were bars and stuff, but you couldn't have liquor stores in the city limits and you couldn't sell wine or beer at uh, retail stores, grocery stores, things like that. So you had to go out into the county to buy um, alcohol. And my mother would go out to the strip, as it was known, which looked like this little it's kind of miniature Las Vegas on the edge of Lubbock, a lot of uh, flashing neon lights and such, where there were 200 liquor stores or something, <laughs> you know, five blocks. And uh, buy one bottle of uh, Mogan David uh, fortified kosher wine. Hmm. which she used to make fruitcakes. You see, what you're describing there are the vestiges of prohibition. And I think this is the the big difference, is that there was a temperance movement in Victorian England, and like the temperance movement that grew up in the United States, it wasn't a moral panic. It was a response to something real. People really did go from the factory into the bar, spend their wages, and leave their wife and children starving. And men really did get drunk and violent at great cost to women. But in Britain, it never made it into law. 
There was a brief period during the First World War where, in order to increase armaments production, the government imposed prohibition light or some rules that determined when one could drink and and how. But it never made it into law, let alone the highest law of the land. And in America, it did. And as a result, you have all sorts of vestiges of temperance in the United States uh, that, that simply don't exist. I mean, people always forget this. The 21st Amendment did repeal uh, the prohibition on alcohol, and the Volstead Act was repealed. But it also makes it clear that the government is allowed to regulate alcohol, and, and most states did. I mean, Oklahoma sure. was not uh, a wet state in any county again until 1965. Yeah, it was the 21st century before they changed the uh, package sale laws in, in Lubbock, where I grew up. I want to say it was 2004, maybe something like that. But, you know, even a lot of big Texas cities like Dallas, you know, liquor stores are closed on Sundays. Um, you can't buy beer and wine before noon. Um, yeah, and on Sundays, I'm not sure. And in Florida, you can buy on a Sunday, but you can't buy liquor in the supermarket, which yeah. you can do in California because it was never really into prohibition. But you you cannot. Uh, the the idea that there would be some distinction drawn between different types of alcohol. Again, it is alien in, in Britain. You can buy everything in the supermarket. There, I mean, the Volstead Act tried to draw this line between good alcohol and bad alcohol. Yeah. And uh, many, many states, you know, Connecticut's another one, have that um, that's still written into their law. But you know, when I was growing up, there were there were laws about when you could sell alcohol on a Sunday that were the result of having had a, a powerful established church. There still is a mm-hmm. powerful established church in Britain, but it's not powerful anymore. Yeah. Um, but there was no not real... really a church anymore either for them. No. <laughs> no. Um, you know, um, there's a famous um, essay called Baptist and Bootleggers oh, yeah. about um, unintentional uh, political coalitions. And prohibition is a famous case of that because you had people who were uh, – anti-alcohol and then people who had vested economic interests that were served by having alcohol either prohibited or highly regulated. And that actually was literally the case uh, for a long time in towns like the one I grew up in, where you had Baptists particularly who were very anti-drinking. They were a big, you know, uh, religious congregation in in that part of the world. And then people who weren't bootleggers, but um, whose businesses you know, have been founded by bootleggers in many cases um, during Prohibition, who had not quite a monopoly, but a very tightly regulated um, oligopoly on liquor sales. And they were, of course, bitterly um, opposed to um, any kind of liberalization because, you know, if you've if you're one of seven businesses that's operating all of the liquor stores um, in a county or a, you know an area of 300,000 people, 310,000 people, you don't want to start having to compete with Walmart and, uh, you know, HEB and Albertsons, the big grocery store chains and things like that. And so, uh, so it was, it took a long time for that to, uh, to change. Although we had one, one nice thing that came out of it. We thought there should be a single purpose political entity um, whose only job would be to argue for repealing these dumb laws. 
and it was naturally known as the cocktail party. <laughs> Do you know, another thing that's really strange about much of the United States is that big states, states that you wouldn't expect to have government-run liquor stores. Oh, Pennsylvania is hilarious on this front because they've got the state stores, which are nuts and uh, deeply corrupt. They've got a separate thing known as uh, beer distributors. So if you want to buy, if you want to buy a six pack of beer, you can actually walk into a pub and buy it and walk out with it. But if you want to buy more than that, you have to go to a beer distributor and um, other stores aren't allowed to sell beer in these quantities. There's just one particular kind of business that can sell beer by the six pack of the case. And um, I don't want to go into the whole story of this because I've written about it in National Review, but there's just some hilarious, corrupt, <laughs> ridiculous stuff that uh, that happened with this. But my 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 favorite part of it was, um, I want to say it was when Ed Brindell was governor, um, and I'm thinking it was Ed Brindell because I believe the contract was given to some crony of his. Um, they wanted to try to um, liberalize uh, grocery store sales of wine a little bit. But instead of allowing the grocery stores to sell wine, what they did was install vending machines out of which you could buy a bottle of wine. And of course, there are only like seven choices because the vending machine, you can't have 300 kinds of wine in there. But um, vending machines, of course, don't have any good way to check um, age. And so they set up these little booths next to the vending machine in which some state employee would sit and check your ID and then allow you to use the vending machine to buy one of seven bottles of wine that were available. This program did not work very well, as you might imagine. I'm not sure how they do things now, but for for a long time it was um, the Soviet, you know, state sewer system and the uh, bars with their piece of the market and the distributorships, which were run by the mob in many cases, um, with their part of the market. So it was kind of a, a screwy thing. So I'm probably wrong about this, but when I think about, say, Virginia, which has state-run liquor stores, it they makes sense to terrible me. ones. Because it's a southern state, or was a southern state, and hmm. it was therefore full of the sort of people who like prohibition. And when I think of Pennsylvania, I can buy it because... Quakers. The, yeah, and also corruption. Um, right. the, the <laughs> state and bootleggers versus Quakers and white guys. There you go. <laughs> but the state that I just can't get my head around that has these state-run institutions is New Hampshire. I mean, New Hampshire mm. has no income tax. It has constitutional carry. <laughs> mm. it, its license plates say live free or die on them. And then it has state-run liquor store. How did that happen? You know, there is that there is a New England, uh, you know, kind of Puritan, of course, anti-drinking thing that has um, still has some, I think, uh, cultural legacies um, mm -hmm. in that part of the world. And um, the idea of licensing this stuff and putting it in charge of the state seemed really, I think, very natural to people at some point in time. Um, you know, maybe in the 19th century when when some of these laws were really cooked up, or even earlier than that, I guess, in some cases. And then once you've got it in place, I mean, I don't have to give you this lecture, right. but um, then you create dependencies and economic interests to keep things that way. Because there's no great constituency to abolish it. It's a bit like the yeah. blanket 21 drinking age. I mean, people are just used to it. Well, and also what you might lose a few votes between 18 and 21 year olds. Who cares? Um, 
the one thing I did see recently, though, that just made me cry with laughter was from Pennsylvania. I assume that there is a union that is associated with the liquor stores and that it's yes. relatively powerful because there was this ad. The government union. Right. And there was this ad. For, <laughs> I, I think maybe the, it was on the ballot, uh, maybe the 2018 or 2016 election in Pennsylvania as to whether to get rid of their system. And they had this mawkish ad where this kid gets hit by a car. That's uh, not funny, but but the, what the the ad was funny. This kid gets hit by a car, and the implication is that the guy in the car is a drunk driver. Mm. And then, as this complete non sequitur, it says, "You know, keep the Pennsylvania liquor store system the way it is." And I, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, "Wait, so what? If you buy your liquor from a government run shop, then you're you're a better drunk driver." I mean, like, what is this ad? <laughs> Yeah, but it was amazing. Driving, driving in Pennsylvania is pretty pretty interesting at the best times, anyway. <laughs> Pennsylvania Turnpike is a good way to die. I remember going to work one morning in Philadelphia, and um, I was driving in from the suburbs. And uh, I've told this story before too, maybe on this podcast. But there's a guy who was stuck in traffic, of course, on this Google Expressway because you always get stuck in traffic there. And there's a guy next to me, and this is like a Monday morning at seven o'clock. You know, it's early, and. Uh, He's in a Volkswagen Jetta, a fairly new-looking one, and he's obviously dressed for work. And um, so, you know, he's, you know, young, yuppie type in his new Jetta going to work somewhere in Philadelphia, and we're sitting in traffic, and I'm just kind of looking around, and, you know, he whips out a crack pipe. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and smoking crack in his Jetta on the expressway um, on his way to his job somewhere in Pennsylvania, probably a social media manager would be my guess or something like that. And uh, off to work. Uh, he actually, he probably was a regulator for the liquor control board. But that was his job. <laughs> probably worked for the DEA. But, yeah. So, um, yeah, he's undercover. He was trying to get me to uh, buy some. I'm sure yeah. that's what it was. It's going to get out of my Saturn, which I had at the time, and buy a little crack. I think if you drive a Saturn, you might want to smoke some crack. That's probably... Um, there's probably a correlation there somewhere. So I have to actually, w- w- while you, while you mentioned cars, I have to tell you this. So I, I took both of our cars into tires plus the Ferrari this and week. Rolls. Yeah, the Ford Explorer needed its air filter changed, and the mm. Escape had a brake light that was out. So I wasn't in for very long on either occasion, but both times I just saw these strange little vignettes um the first one was really weird this guy driving a 1995 ford bronco came in wearing a houston oilers t-shirt a who a houston oilers t-shirt okay and insisted upon paying in cash and then gave an email address that ended in at aol.com and I was sitting there thinking, you know, have I been transported back to the nineties? It was, just, it was so strange. But the second one was, was worse. Um, there was this lady in front of me, and she said she couldn't afford to get all the work that they had said she needed done, done. <clears throat> and so she said, "Oh well, could you give me some advice? You know, if you had to choose between doing the tires or the brakes, which would you do?" <laughs> And the guy at the desk sort of said, uh, both. <laughs> uh, yeah, both. You know, we could put it on credit for you. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't. And I just thought that was, that's the kind of question you do not want to ask. 
Yeah, that's true. That's that stinks to be or poor. be asked. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, uh, before we move on to the politics, which we will eventually, um, you know, I needed to get some uh, routine maintenance done on my uh, Jeep, and apparently can't get it done right now because more or less the entire Jeep mechanic workforce in North Texas is out with COVID right now. Everyone has it. Everyone, apparently, they're like, yeah, we're not taking any appointments for doing any work right now because we have no mechanics. Everyone I know has it. Is it not the same for you? Just in in Britain and Florida and New York, everyone I know has it. Um, I wouldn't quite say everyone I know has it, but it's been been pretty common. Um, it was a CDC thing that said they expect half of Europe to get it in the next couple of uh, right. next month or so. Yeah. Something like that. Yikes. No, it's good. I think it's good. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, probably ultimately, but it sucks for a number of people who are going to get very sick and a small number of people who are going to die. Yes, of course it does, but I think that's going to happen anyway. But other so, than that, Mrs. Lincoln. <laughs> no, no, but but I, I, given that I think that's a constant, that the bundling yeah, yeah, yeah. and bunching up of this into a short period of time is probably good, given the alternative. Nature's vaccination program. Mm. Speaking of offenses against nature, Chuck Schumer, go. Yes, having filibustered for the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> well, I love the filibuster. I, I pirates, you mean? Yes. <laughs> and if I had my way, I would put the filibuster into the constitution. People often say the filibuster is not in the constitution, which is true. Although That's the true. Senate's ability to set its own rules is so, in a sense, the filibuster is in the constitution, but it should be in the constitution. In fact. I think there's an argument to be made that the filibuster would have been a more effective means by which to guarantee federalism than the enumerated powers doctrine. Because you can always fudge the enumerated powers doctrine. You've been doing say, that for a few hundred years. Right. You can say, well, I think it is interstate commerce, even if that's absurd. Uh, you can say, I think it is necessary and proper. You can appeal to the preamble. Oh, you could just do what you want, frankly, if you get the right judges. But it's difficult to fudge a number or a, a ratio. And so if I had my way, I would put the filibuster into the Constitution so that the Senate can only acquiesce to federal ideas if you have major buy-in. I might even raise the threshold to the same as constitutional amendments so that you have <clears> to <throat> really, really, really want to do something before you can do it, and thereby everything else is left to the states. But anyway, I am not obviously particularly popular or influential in the Democratic Party, and the Democrats this week are trying once again to abolish the filibuster. They say they're looking for a carve-out, but we all know how that works. There's just no way of adding a if-it's-too-important clause to the filibuster without handing that clause to the Republicans as well. And there are lots of things whatever Democrats might think, that Republicans also think are just too important. Like, for example, um, uh, not killing babies. Yes. So if you say, well, what about the fundamental right to vote? Then President DeSantis is going to say, well, what about the fundamental right to life? And before long... Property. Yeah, or, or you know, pick your poison. Yeah. And I just think that, aside from all of the conversations we've had about the merits of the filibuster that this is tactically batty. <laughs> I yes. mean, you've got a party that is on the record, including Chuck Schumer, 
in regretting the last time they did this in 2013 with judicial mm-hmm. nominations. Chuck Schumer said it was a mistake. You have half the people he's trying to convince in his own party are on the record saying it was a mistake. They regretted. Amy Klobuchar, who's now running around saying we have to get rid of the filibuster, it's not only on the record saying it was a mistake, but that she hoped it would be reversed. That if it were up to her, she would go back to the 60 vote threshold. And they're doing it a few months before a midterm election in which it is likely that they are going to get crushed. Even if they don't get crushed in the Senate, they're going to get crushed in the House, which would render any abolition of the filibuster pointless because you won't be able to get anything through Kevin McCarthy. So, Kevin, I understand that they just want power. And I understand this is how political parties come to think. And the Democrats are not the only party that thinks like this. But what are they doing <laughs> tactically? It's baffling to me. Yeah. Um, well, there's already a Williamson's Law, so I can't uh, call this that. But um, an observation that maybe I should dwell on um, at some length is that Democrats, when they are in the majority, act like they are never going to be in the minority again. Republicans, when they're in the minority, act like they are never going to be in the majority again. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this is an example of that. You know, the Democrats are, have this great talent for inventing political weapons, you know, weaponizing certain points of procedure, certain, you know, uh, pressure points in the political process. Um, you know, for years and years and years, um, the nomination of judges to the Supreme Court was um, rarely a very contentious issue. Um, They just sort of, sometimes people didn't like it, um, but the president got to pick his person unless that person was, you know, sort of obviously grossly unqualified or corrupt or something like that. Um, The nominations tended to go through for the most part, there have been exceptions. And then, you know, comes Robert Bork. And now after that, every, you know, judicial nomination is kind of a pageant of partisanship and nationality and stupidity. But then, you know, the Democrats act surprised when their decision to really lean on the pressure point of Senate confirmation of judges gets used against them by Republicans. Uh, You know, in the matter of Merrick Garland, to take a very dramatic example, but in other cases also, And um, they're shocked and appalled by this. You know, for years, Democrats were routine uh, practitioners and masters of the filibuster. And they got really upset. Not filibuster. I'm sorry. Gerrymandering. Uh, In terms of obscure 18th and 19th century words. um, I was getting confused. I guess uh, gerrymanders. It's weird that we say gerrymander, right? Because his name was Gary. Gary. Yeah. But it just looks like it should be pronounced Gary. And... um, and Gary Mander just sounds pervy. <laughs> sounds, sounds like a guy called Gary. It sounds like a 70s porn star, you know, <laughs> Gary Mander. And um, anywho. Um, You'll never guess what shape it is. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. And um, But when Republicans got really good at gerrymandering and got really aggressive about redistricting, suddenly it became, you know, a problem. And we can't have this anymore because Republicans are doing it now. And you see this everywhere. Um, you know, politics about debt ceiling and uh, and that sort of thing. 
Um, and of course, the filibuster is, is yet another example of that. They just, they don't see, I suppose Republicans are dumb. We know this. Republicans don't learn quickly, but they do learn over time. You can set an example for them that they will eventually learn in their monkey-like way to copy. And uh, Democrats just seem to forget that um, Republicans eventually will pick up and use whatever political weapons have been created. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it's amazing to me that there are two people in the party out of 50 who can see it. And why should two people be allowed to stop the, oh, wait a minute, 52 people? I've been enjoying your your rants on that, by the way, of um, people who don't seem to understand that if you have 100 senators and 52 of them oppose something, that's a majority. But it's weird, isn't it? That that I mean, so it, it's it's self-evident, I think, why it's fallen to Joe Manchin, who is a senator for West Virginia, which is a Republican state that elects Joe Manchin. And Kirsten Sinema, who is one of two Democratic senators in Arizona, that until 12 seconds ago was a Republican state that always voted for Republicans in all circumstances. Although it's interesting that those those states are sort of inverses, you know, where West Virginia was traditionally a very Democratic state. Right. And right. recently gone Republican. Arizona traditionally a very Republican state that's recently leaning more Democratic. But, but I mean, I, I, so I can comprehend why it is that those people understand that people might think differently than uh, Joe Biden does or Twitter does or wherever they're getting their information. But the thing that baffles me is that there are actually more Democratic senators in those sorts of states than you would think. I mean, yes, I understand why, why those two are aware that people dissent from the Democratic Party's line. But why can't John Ossoff see it? And why can't Peters in Michigan see it? And Hmm. why can't Angus King in Maine see it? I mean, it's possible they can, and that they're just happy to let those uh, two, Manchin and Cinema, take the heat. Um, You know, another thing that baffles me is Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. So she's down 10 points in polls ahead of this year's election. I mean, I'm not saying she's definitely going to lose, but she's not doing very well. She is a a Democrat in New Hampshire. New Hampshire does not like Joe Biden and really likes its Republican governor, Sununu, who says he's not going to run for the Senate, but might. Wouldn't it just be easy to say, eh, I don't think we should be ruining the Senate now. <laughs> but they can't. Yeah. And, and I will say, this is just one area where you can't play the both sides game, because in 2017, Republicans had a Senate majority, albeit a slim one. They knew that it was precarious because they tried to repeal Obamacare. John McCain said no, famously on the on the floor of the Senate. And Susan Collins said no before that. And their signature repeal legislation that they'd been promising for eight years by that point, went down in flames. Uh, So they knew it, and they knew that it was really difficult to get stuff done. And yet, despite President Trump 
saying, you must abolish the filibuster, the filibuster must go. Mitch McConnell and 30 members of the Republican Senate caucus said no. And they signed a letter saying no. Yeah. So it does seem that Republicans, I mean, I, I take your point about once Republicans are in the minority, they think they'll never be in the majority again. But, you know, that obviously applies to them being in the majority too, because they obviously thought they were about to lose their majority, which actually, as it turned out, they were. Yeah. But they had the foresight. I mean, Mitch McConnell had the foresight to to say no. And amazingly enough, Chuck Schumer does not. I just... Yeah, when they write the uh, history of our time, I think that McConnell, McConnell will loom large as a very important and canny figure in a way that he maybe doesn't right now. I think he's the most influential elected Republican outside of Ronald Reagan in the last 50 years. Really? Yeah. More than George W. Bush? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that would be an interesting case to hear someone make. I mean, I can make it in brief, if you like, or we could save it for next week. I think you need to write an essay on this. Yeah, I should do that. I think we need uh, at least 3,000 words on this subject. <laughs> you laugh like I'm kidding. No, no, I will. I will. I just... <laughs> I just suddenly thought of having to sit down and write 3,000 words. I don't know about you, but I like having written more than I like writing. No, you know me. I don't mind it. Yeah. I'm going to sit down and do some more here in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, actually, I I wrote a column before 7 o'clock this morning. Maybe before 6. I was up and moving pretty quickly. So um, anything else we should talk about other than this uh, nonsensical stuff? COVID is a mess but hopefully wow. becoming a more manageable mess. The Democrats are a mess, becoming a less manageable mess. Inflation is a mess, also becoming a less manageable mess. Inflation's a disaster. Yeah, I was really irritated by um, a headline this morning. Uh, well, not irritated by the headline. The headline was fine, but by what by the truth that it spoke, which I wrote a little corner post about. And it was the New York Times, and it was the Biden administration has been waiting for months for inflation to fade. And it made me think about Trump in the early days of uh, COVID saying, yeah, spring comes around, it's just going to disappear. It's not going to be a problem. We can just ignore this thing. And if we stop worrying about it, it's going to go away. That is not how problems like this work. And inflation certainly is not a problem that works that way. You know, we had periodically problematic inflation from the 1960s through the 1980s um, for two decades and then some. And... uh, you don't want to do that. Currently, inflation is higher than it's probably been since. What year were you born? I was born in 1984, so never in my lifetime has it been this. Yeah, high. since before Charlie Cook was was walking the face of the earth, and uh, and uh, since I was in fourth grade. Although I'd point out, by the way, that Joe Biden had been in the Senate ten years at that point. Yeah, <laughs> true. That's true. He was elected the year I was born, and mm-hmm. I am not young. Yeah, that's uh, true. I've been in politics. Well, then I'm not young. Is that what you're saying? No, that he's been in the Senate a long time. <laughs> that guy's been in politics forever. Man, it is. Um, did he play golf or something or build ships in bottles or learn to play violin? Isn't there anything this guy wants to do with his life? Well, and, yeah. and you know, the thing that fascinates me about Joe Biden is that. I mean, uh, I wouldn't want to hang up with his family either. Oh, I'm sorry. That was amazing. <laughs> No, but, but they seem insufferable. Don't you think that he should be more culpable 
for this inflation problem, given that he lived through the last time. I mean, I, I could cut a little bit of slack for people who were born in 1985 who, you know, said, well, I guess we've, we've moved past that. We fixed that problem. That was, that was a, you know, it was a particular moment in history. But Biden knew he was there. I mean, this is why yeah, my dad's born. always hawkish about this stuff, right? Because he was born in 1947. So, I mean, he remembers what this did to Britain, what it did to America. And so he always says, oh, I got a But like, yeah, I don't, I don't expect the average student at, you know, Harvard to, to be personally worried about inflation in a vacuum. But Biden should yeah. be. Well, Biden, unlike your father, was not born in 1947. <laughs> he was born in 1942. So he's even a little older than that. Yeah. And um, yeah, maybe he wasn't paying much attention to politics and doesn't remember the immediate, you know, post-war inflation and <laughs> that stuff. But um, damn, yeah, um, he seems impervious to education. But I think they knew that about him in law school. Yeah, he's, um, he's a piece of work. He's a piece of no work is what he yeah. really is. I mean, he's just kind of fundamentally lazy. Which is a bit of a problem. Um, it is and it isn't. There's good kinds of lazy presidents, I think, and there are bad kinds of lazy presidents. Um, I suppose I want a president who's not lazy per se, but one who's not ambitious either. Right. Calvin Coolidge. Yeah. Well, so much for that. Anything else we should talk about? No, I think... Um... I better get to work writing my Mitch McConnell piece. <laughs>